The Bringing Humanities to Life Project at Bismarck State College presents Humanities in Person, Conversations About Humanities at BSC. I'm here today with Charlotte Williams, Assistant Professor of Psychology here at BSC. Hello, Charlotte. Good morning. Of course, psychology is a wonderful major and area of scholarship, no doubts about that, but you started out as an English major from your undergraduate degree. Uh, what drew you to the major of English? So this is an interesting story. Um, before I went to college, I was actually in the Air Force. Oh. Um, I was in the Air Force Academy's preparatory school. So it's a service academy like program to get you ready to go into the four-year university aspect of it um, and be a military officer. Uh, and I realized that it wasn't for me. Um, so I got out and um, neither of my parents had went to college at the time. Um, and they were really encouraging me to go to college. And I was like, okay, so let me go to college. I started out at a community college, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I kept it very general. And I was, um, I got my AA or my associate of arts in liberal arts. And I would ask questions like, so what can I do with this? And someone suggested I transfer to a four-year college. Um, and so I transferred and I went to New Mexico State University. And when I got there, it was like one of the transfer days and I had to go to the advising office and I didn't know what I was doing. And the advisor basically asked, well, what were you best at in high school? And I said, English classes because I took uh, like AP English. And so they're like, okay, then you're an English major. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it happened. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, okay, that was easy. <laughs> and In-depth, individualized academic advisement. That's, yep. that's, really, that's really good stuff. <laughs> yep, that's how it happened. Um, because I had no idea how to, I didn't know about anthropology or how to even become like Indiana Jones and do archaeology. And those were classes that were offered at my school, but I didn't know. Um, college advising wasn't something that my high schools really did. And I'm a military brat, <laughs> an Air Force brat, and I went to six high schools. Um, so oh, my I, gosh. Yeah, so I bounced around a lot. Well, technically five high schools. The sixth part was night school because some of my credits didn't transfer um, into some other thing in high school. So, um, yeah, I, I that's how I became an English major. Um, and when I was doing it, I didn't know you could change majors either. <laughs> so, like, my, my advising in college wasn't too in-depth, and I didn't, um, I didn't even really talk to my advisors or or reach out to them or even my instructors too much because I felt like I didn't want to bother them or be a hassle or something. So I didn't ask the questions I wish I kind of asked. And now that I know it's okay to ask, I really, if any students listen to this, encourage them to ask those questions because I'm sure your instructors, your advisors, they're more than willing to help because one, that's their job. <laughs> and two, like, we learn from our mistakes and would love to share what you can do to make it an easier college process. Well, you touch on an, a number of interesting points for our students there. First of all, 
you were a first-generation college student, and we forget how many of our students are first-generation, and that you know all the lingo that we use in higher ed is not familiar to them uh, at all, uh, and so that that's a a great reminder. But the other thing is. Um, the, the chance in the first two years to just kind of explore different things and see what you enjoy, what you're good at. Uh, had I been that advisor at New Mexico State, I might have said, what classes did you enjoy at the community college you went to? Because uh, that might have been a better a better indication. But mm-hmm. hey, you did okay. Yeah, and I loved it. I still loved my, my degree. Um, I ended up getting an English degree in English language, cult, like English language, uh, culture and something else. <laughs> I can't remember the full title. They kept, they have changed it, uh-huh. but it it is an English degree, and um, I I think my emphasis was on medieval to early modern literature, or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I ended up figuring out like towards in my senior jun- late junior year senior year, I figured out I could do something called the Honors College because I had a good enough GPA. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I took some great classes there. Um, And I figured out I could do an undergraduate honors thesis. And I did it on uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. I did like a rhetorical analysis on that. And that was super fun. Um, And then I would take other classes like biblical literature and something on King Arthur. And it was just like the inner book nerd in me was just so fulfilled. <laughs> you weren't um, aiming for teaching then? No. Um, well, I, I kind of was, like, in the back of my mind considering it, um, but at the high school level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, part of, I was a work-study as well in, um, in my undergraduate years, and to also supplement my income, I also was a substitute teacher in uh-huh. high schools. And so I was considering possibly doing it, but my, I was told that you needed to have a major in teaching with an English emphasis. And I was like, well, I don't have that. So I wasn't exactly sure how to do the teaching. Um, but this was also uh, when I was um, in my undergraduate years during the Great Recession. Um, but we didn't know we were in it yet. Mm-hmm. And everyone was saying, like, no, no one's hiring English majors. And so I got kind of personally worried. And then I couldn't – I figured out, like, I think in my late junior year, senior year, I was like, I figured out how to change my major. But I was on scholarships and everything. And so I was like, well, credit-wise, I'm running out. And I really didn't want to get student loans. So I said, I might as well finish this out um, and not change my major and stay in college longer. Um, but I ended up staying in college longer for a different <laughs> reason. <laughs> um, so what I what I did then, like senior year, uh, I needed to take. They, they were like viewing the wider world classes, where it was like you take a a course outside of your major, and one of them was like agricultural animals of the world, and another one I ended up doing was like abnormal psychology. The only psychology class I'd ever taken. I didn't even really know what psychology was at the time, except um, something in movies like Hannibal Lecter, like from the Silence of the Lambs trilogy. And um, so I took abnormal psychology, and I was like looking at my instructor throughout the semester. I'm like, he seems very confident. He seems awesome. He seems like a very successful kind of guy that I want to be like. And he was a psychologist. And 
I, I felt a bit more comf comfortable and confident um, in my senior year where I went to like people I knew who uh, I worked in the student union at the time. And one of the people she didn't, I didn't work with her, but her office was near me. And I think she had some position in like student organizations office. And her name was Dr. Susan Waldo. And I didn't really know any doctors at the time. So I said, hey, Dr. Waldo, like, how do I be like you and get a doctorate? <laughs> because there's this guy who is a psychologist who's my instructor. And I kind of want to be like him, but I'm too intimidated to talk to him. <laughs> and she's like, well, it just so happens that my and her partner, I found out later, was also a psychologist. Oh. <laughs> and But she never told me that. And he also taught at the college, but I had no idea. And um, she told me, well, you have to apply to something called grad school or graduate school. And I'm like, okay, what is that? <laughs> and so I'd ask all these kind of questions step by step. And I, I didn't want to feel like I was bothering her too much. But I would then go home or to my dorm and Google and then, like, do Internet research. Like, what is graduate school? How to go to graduate school? How to apply? And funding and all those questions I and then I would get my application and I would ask her like just so I'm filling out this application what does this mean and that mean and she was phenomenal she I don't know if she knows how much of an influence or impact she had on me but that really stuck with me like her willingness to help which is why I was saying earlier like if students don't know and if they listen to this podcast don't feel afraid to ask for help because there are people that like she seemed like a stern kind of woman you don't wouldn't want to approach at times because she was very busy, very efficient in her work. But she was a phenomenal, wonderful, warm woman to sit down and ask for help. And I never would have done that like freshman, sophomore year. Um, so I totally forgot the question. <laughs> but that's kind of how I bridged into psychology. Um, and then you had to do something called a... Uh, like your for your graduate application, like an essay about some topic. And I figured what I could do, since the only psychology class I had was abnormal psychology, I was in the uh, King Arthur class at the time. So I did it on like some psychoanalysis, what I thought was a psychoanalysis of the Knights of the Round Table. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, that... <laughs> I, I guess they were somehow the admissions committee kind of amused or impressed, and I ended up getting accepted into University of North Dakota. So yeah. you graduated in the spring, and you started graduate school then in the fall? Yeah, it was um, actually a summer start. Oh. Um, yeah, for counseling programs, I think they try to get in, like, their diversity courses in the summer and some other stuff. Uh, just like a crash course preparing you for fall, spring, too. Um, now, for some people, a switch from English to psychology might seem um, like a big leap, but it makes sense to me. And I guess the sense I want to make of it is that before we had the discipline of psychology, we had stories and songs and poems and plays. And and do you, do you find that that's the case, that most of what we talk about or what you talk about in psychology, there's literature to reflect that? Definitely. Um, one of the best mind-blowing classes I had 
was the history of psychology. And it went back to like Aristotle and Plato. And it was just like the root, very roots of psychology is in philosophy. And who knows? I don't know if cavemen were kind of pont if they like on their time off from like running from like a saber toothed tiger or something, <laughs> if they were like theorizing about the mind or soul. I don't know. But we have these ideas, these concepts that go back thousands of years where people were toying with the idea of a soul or a consciousness, an unconsciousness. And in that class, like the whole class was just like philosophy every time we walked into the classroom. It was, it was so in-depth. And one of the concepts that really stuck with me, I think, was attributed to like Rene Descartes, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, um, it, but it was a whole like mind-body dualism. And like if there is some kind of consciousness up top in your mind, it operates separately from the body. And it just, it really just got me kind of thinking about this and how much like literature like all these books talk about these concepts and ideas. Um, the the founding father of psychology, his name is uh, William James. Mm -hmm. And he is the brother to Henry James, like a famous novelist. And when I was an undergrad, like I took this one instructor's class. I repeated it a few times. Like I didn't fail it, but I took it a few times because you could get more credits. And I thought it was a great class. And that class was like American literature. And every semester, he changed the books he had to read. Um, so I read things like from Henry James, like Daisy Miller and um, Turn of the Screw. But then when I got into psychology and I was learning about William James, someone in passing mentioned Henry James. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then I started looking into it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're related. And, and it just kind of like like wowed me because I'm like, well, William James is the father of psycho or American psychology and functionalism. And then you have him also as a philosopher and talking about like radical empiricism and all these great ideas. And I'm just like, wow. So <laughs> if his brother could be a novelist, imagine like the rich conversations around that. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, like, it just kind of opened the idea that just because you study one thing doesn't restrict you to that one thing. Like there's just because you're into psychology, why not think about literature and how that can influence things or art and drama and philosophy, religion, like all these great ideas. They're also interconnected. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the idea of multidisciplinary study and, and because it is all connected, no, no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, so how has your study in English um, influenced or broadened your study in psychology? Oh, so much. Um, so I, when I was doing clinical work, uh, working with clients, because um, my, my PhD is in uh, counseling psychology, I considered myself a humanist. And when I was very, very early into my master's program, getting uh, my degree, we were pretty much directed to pick a kind of theory that we 
would have that would influence our own clinical practice. And I was really drawn to humanistic psychology, um, and one of the founders of that is Carl Rogers. And just let me interrupt for a second. What is like the menu of choices for, (laughs) for, if they said, pick one. Yeah, it could be. What are some other examples just to contextualize your choice? Yeah, it could be like behaviorism. It could be um, cognitive behavioral, uh, trying to think of other ones that I don't really follow too much. Um, Adlerian, like there's all, there's like so many different kind of theories, uh, but you get your kind of core basic ones to start So would this with. include like Jungianism, yes. uh, Freudianism? Uh, yeah, okay. so you, yeah, you could be maybe like a uh, psychoanalyst or like there's different kind of like, yeah, menu options you could look at. But when I was looking at their concepts and their core, like trying to understand their cores, I just kept kind of going back to humanism and Mm -hmm. humanistic psychology. And some, like, another humanist would be Abraham Maslow. Okay. And, like, he had the whole, like, hierarchy of needs. Sure. Um, But Carl Rogers was the one I kept going back to. And that humanistic psychology kind of started taking root and surging in the 1950s, I think. And they believe in like free will, self-actualization, um, consciousness. So it differs from like Freud where he focuses more on the unconsciousness and dreams and so on. So with that, I really found myself drawn to the core conditions of change. And in, with that, it believes the where the three things that a psychologist or a therapist need to help in a client change are like empathy, um, uh, genuineness or authenticity and unconditional positive regard. It's like no attached kind of like no attachments, love for your client um, or not love, but like positive regard, finding something you still see positive in a client. And I was like, cool. And then when I was <laughs> researching more into Carl Rogers later on, as I started developing more as a, as a clinician, I saw that or read that Carl Rogers was also married to an artist. And I found myself also, like, throughout the years, just drawn to art. And his daughter, she recently passed, well, recently, it was like five or six years ago, um, her daughter would eventually become a psychologist too, and her name was Dr. Natalie Rogers. And she was the founder of something called Person-Centered Expressive Arts. And that was this umbrella for um, like drama therapy, um, those who want to make artwork, uh, ceramics, uh, like all music therapy, like poetry. Yeah, poetry, like all of that kind of fell under this umbrella. And I was so drawn to it because when I was with my clients, sometimes they don't feel maybe comfortable talking Mm -hmm. or they don't know how to express themselves. So I would encourage them to sit with, with like themselves for a bit, see what comes up. And I would find like what my, what my clients were interested in too. And sometimes some would come back with poetry and want to sit in session and say like, this is something that 
I felt expresses how I'm feeling. If they don't feel like they have the words or the ways to share how they're feeling with me, just in like regular sentences, they find other ways to express it. I've had clients that I would sit with and we would draw and paint in our sessions or use clay. Um, sometimes some clients I've had would bring passages in from novels and say like, I identify with this character. So we could go deeper like, okay, how do you identify with this person? Or um, yeah, like, or this piece of work that you created somehow. So. There's so much overlap because not everyone expresses themselves in the exact same way. So I see, yeah, that because I used to use person-centered therapy, when I found out about person-centered expressive arts, I was like, this, this is the way for, for me personally as a clinician. Sure, I would integrate other interventions and evidence-based techniques and stuff into my sessions, but... There's something so natural, I guess, with uh, the humanities aspect of it that we are all drawn to and have been drawn to for millennia. Yeah. <laughs> From the cave paintings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. And can you identify, uh, I mean, it seems obvious may maybe, but can you identify anything from your uh, English training that really supported this or enabled you to take this on? I think just the various classes I took and learning how to analyze um, literature. Like, I didn't agree with this one instructor at all. It was uh, some British literature, um, Gothic literature stuff I was taking. Almost every novel, if you didn't agree with her about finding some kind of like vampiric lesbian stuff in it, <laughs> she she just wouldn't. She was a bitter woman. <laughs> but that's beside the point. <laughs> but from that and other classes I had, I learned about yeah, how to go deeper with a piece of work and look for meanings and concepts, um, archetypes, like those kind of things. And that, I think, did help me sharpen and hone my analytical skills going into psychology because then I could learn how to listen to a client speaking and then think about meanings and concepts. Like So from like uh, session to session with a client, I could see this like look at themes and overarching themes or like people, important people in their life and then start making those dots and connections. All right. You mentioned archetypal characters. And one of the things I, uh, it seemed to me that was kind of a connection between uh, 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 English fiction writing, you know, um, literature anyway, uh, and psychology is archetypal characters versus stock characters. Uh, can you tell me a little something about that? When I think of that, I think of like uh, one of the famous uh, psychology people in our field is uh, Carl Jung. And I think of like the collective unconsciousness. And so some examples of archetypes might be like, the wise man, wise old man, um, mothers, fathers, 
uh, heroes and so on. So when I, I actually touch on this in one of my classes, um, when I think about these, I think of like different examples of say like, like Harry Potter and like the golden trio. Um, maybe Lord of the Rings and Aragon and how he is like the hero kind of character and how these characters reappear in different literature. And I think then like how I connect that maybe with some of my clients that I was mentioning earlier that might see themselves in certain roles in books or movies and so on. So that's kind of where my mind goes and how we have those kind of conversations. Like if you were in say say Lord of the Rings, <laughs> um, it, do you, which character might you identify with? And if they say like a certain character, um, then I think like, is this a character that is like one of those archetypal kind of ones? And so I'm like, do they maybe see themselves as this mother? Do they see themselves as a father character? So I'm able to kind of take that and then apply it to their lived experiences um, day to day and then work through whatever kind of issue might be happening. Um, but then if they if they were to say, like, I see them see myself as, uh, like, I don't know, if like a stock character, like, <laughs> I don't know, some kind of hobbit mentioned in passing that we don't know anything about, mm -hmm. <laughs> then I might be like, so you, maybe they see themselves as invisible or ignored or I don't, I don't know. I would have to think about what they're talking about, but I would see like maybe the importance they see on themselves versus maybe um, feelings of isolation or loneliness or something um, that they might have trouble connecting to other people. At the same time, if everyone always sees themselves as the hero, <laughs> that, that might indicate something as well. Yep. <laughs> now, I suppose it's an oversimplification to say that a lot of what what um, a, a counselor does, psychologist does in a counseling session is try to lead the client to some self-awareness. Is that too simple? It would depend if the client is ready to go there. Um, because sometimes if you try to force it, it might do more damage. They might not be ready for certain things. Um, so... While self-awareness is good, sometimes it might act as a protective factor. Uh. Um, so, it, it, and again, too, it depends on your ther um, your theoretical orientation, like how you, you approach therapy. Um, but from my own kind of theoretical background working with clients, um, person-centered, uh, humanistic psychology, it's more client-guided. So... I would follow the client. I would encourage and support them and kind of like challenge them very, a little bit, like more and more, but I wouldn't be as direct. I wouldn't be as um, like, okay, this is what's happening, X, Y, Z, because that could, yeah, really kind of, um, if the client's not ready, it could kind of create some setbacks. I guess part of what I'm thinking of is you don't exactly uh, cut out a bad um, psychological experience, like you might remove yeah. a tumor or something like that. But is it helpful for somebody to understand what happened, understand their reaction? You oh, know, definitely. To identify, articulate what, what 
what the problem is? Again, I'm using yeah. pretty simplistic words, but yeah, it it is it is helpful, but only I think when the time is right, mm-hmm. for, and that varies client to client. Um, for example, it depends on like if there's some struggle at work, some interpersonal conflict. That might look different from somebody who maybe went through some really rough trauma. And so like, yeah, it just kind of depends on where the client's at, but understanding how maybe certain behaviors are influencing them, shaping them. And then they can, um, when they're, the time is right for them, get more kind of awareness around it on, and then how to resolve it. Um, but yeah, you, you are correct. Yeah. Now, I hate to keep bringing it back to English, yeah, but no. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me one of, the, one of the things you learn as an English major is writing skills. Another thing you learn is looking for the clues in analyzing literature and using that as evidence for whatever claim you're making. I'm, I'm wondering, if first, if you agree with that, and second, how that uh, skill is used um, in counseling or in psychology? Always. And I agree with it. It's always used. Um, so for first writing purposes, writing is so important. One of the hardest adjustments for me, though, was going from MLA format to APA format. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that it was different. So when I first got into my master's program, I never heard of APA format. Or if I did, maybe it was in passing, but I never got exposure to it at all. Um, So I would get my paper back and it would be like really torn apart. And I was like, oh, no, what happened? (laughs) I swear I cited this correctly or whatever. And that's how I got introduced to APA format and needing to learn really quick. (laughs) That's brutal. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, my my English undergrad, it gave me really strong writing skills. Mm -hmm. Um, I did have to change the, the kind of tone and format of how I was writing, um, and so like those little things I had to learn, but that analytical ability, um, that analyzing going in depth was super helpful because I would have to read these peer reviewed journal articles and listen to my clients and transcribe like so many of our sessions and things like that. Look for themes, look for ideas, uh, concepts, and then be able to defend what the clients or like this case conceptualization of a client I was working on and defend it like, I think this is happening because of my theories that I'm using. Um, Because you don't do anything in psychology without like working with a client in clinical work without having a rationale like why are you doing this? So everything you're doing has to be supported and backed up. Um, And then just being able to consume literature, things you're reading. Like we have uh, a thing called evidence-based interventions or evidence-based treatments. So you want to be pretty much an informed consumer of like the literature you're reading, not for like fiction, but for nonfiction things to help your client. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does help having a, a love of reading so that you're up to date on different treatments. Um, 
yeah, and being able to analyze like why maybe this paper is a bad paper, maybe this treatment is a bad treatment, or how this could damage a client too. So you want to balance, um, be able to yeah use those analytical skills. Yeah. I should have included reading skills in <laughs> what you gain as an English major, but oh, definitely. <laughs> thank you, thank you for uh, uh, getting me back on track with that. Um, do you want to talk anything about your uh, dissertation or your <laughs> thesis? Oh, my dissertation was um, pretty co complex. Uh, so psych in my training program, um, in psychology as a whole, I noticed that there seems to be a problem in that it's a bit behind on their ideas and concepts of mixed-race individuals. And I identify as biracial. Uh, my father's American and black, um, and my father or my mother <laughs> is English and she's white. Um, so they met when my dad was in the Air Force, stationed in England. So, um, she's British, and so my brother and I were mixed. And when I was going through psychology classes, I, I just noticed that we would learn about these racial identity development theories, but nothing we ever touched on was on mixed people. So I started looking into and this and researching it, like kind of like why. And I was really kind of peeved, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> like pissed off <laughs> about... <laughs> Probably don't want to get any more uh, yeah. uh, radical than pissed, yeah. but okay. Yeah, I was just so angry about how psychology was looking at mixed-race people because the literature was kind of rooted in these very negative ideas. And it would say, like, mixed-race people will never fit into anywhere. They'll feel very isolated. Depression is common. Suicide is common. Like, it just was very tragic. And I'm like, this is not my lived experience at all. Um, and then that's, it wasn't until, like, my PhD program a few years into it when I was looking into dissertation ideas that I was like, wow, this really reminds me of something that I read somewhere else. And it took a while. But then I realized that that one class I took over and over and over again mm -hmm. on American literature from that instructor, he was the very first person who introduced to me this tragic mulatto kind of trope. And that's where there's this mixed race character like in like pre-slightly post-Civil War literature um, where basically they're kind of destined to have a bad time, <laughs> maybe be destitute or eventually die a tragic death. They don't fit in any, anywhere and so on too. So I'm like, holy cow, is psychology kind of getting these identity development theories for people like me because of these concepts like from Uncle Tom's cabin or something? So my, my dissertation then, I was... I wanted to originally do it just on like inventing a, my own new kind of identity development model, but some other people had done something similar that were more kind of like positive um, also. So, so I was like, well, I'm somebody who has mixed culture as well. So my, my dissertation is on the identity development of uh, mixed race uh, or a biracial, black, white specifically, individuals who grew up in the military. 
um, because we are exposed to different cultures. Like the way someone in uh, England, for example, if you grew up over there, the the racial, ethnic culture and perceptions of identity are viewed so differently than here in the United States. Um, so. That's kind of what I, I did with uh, my dissertation and examined that, and I came up with my own, my own theory. So again, that bad teacher from undergrad <laughs> taught you you can disagree with accepted canon or what authority says. So that served you well. Well, actually, that was the good instructor because I took him a few times. No, no, no. Oh. But the, the one you said, no, I don't think everything oh, is yes. vampires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just like, yeah, kind of. Mm, I disagree with what you're saying, yeah. Uh, uh, dissertation topic, actually. Yeah, like there's so many ideas that could be researched uh, because our society is constantly evolving and changing, and the ways that we see the world differ from those like 20, 30, 40, whatever years ago. And yeah. like when I was a child, I never encountered that many other people who looked like me and now I'm looking back and I'm like, there's a ton of people like who are now in interracial relationships. Like when my parents were born, it was illegal for them to be married. Like that just blows my mind. <laughs> like so so I'm like, yeah, it's amazing how things evolve over time. So Yeah. Get out there if you got a good idea, just research. <laughs> um, put it out there. Like help help somebody like in like shape and influence them and do something positive because when I was looking I got angry so if 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 you don't see somebody out there like with your ideas um, that they have already put out there then you do it yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't sit around waiting for someone else to do it and be upset about a problem like just go and be that kind of like forerunner of it uh, what are the kinds of uh topics or issues or subjects that you're doing in your your research now, if you're doing any? Right now, I am trying to survive finals. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, but with the pandemic, too, that has kind of set me back on, like, getting some stuff published. Uh, just reviewers are swamped um, with their own lives. So I'm waiting on one thing to get published, um, and it's going on five months now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> waiting to hear back from a reviewer. Um, something more recently I did was with Indie Humanities and here at BSC um, was looking at the role of potentially how reading, how we can build empathy um, from reading and using mindfulness. That was one thing. Um, but the, the most, I guess, recent idea is something from the TV show um, I haven't read the novels either, but the TV show Bridgerton. And again, revisiting that kind of tragic mulata kind of um, stereotype so or trope. So those are two things I'm kind of like <laughs> playing with right now. Mm -hmm. um, but in the summer, I'll probably be able to kind of dive back into it. It's just mm -hmm. so much going on right now. I'm planning a wedding and all, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it's like my, my besides teaching, like... Um, yeah, the one thing I love about this job is there's more kind of like freedom to kind of tinker with any ideas you have. And yeah, like no one, there's no one there to tell me like, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I can find out on my own. Yeah. I like that freedom. <laughs> yeah. 
That is good. <laughs> well, and, and do you find that uh, the outside scholarship you do um, works its way into your classes and into your teaching? Oh, definitely. Um, one of my classes I have to teach, is, or I get the pleasure of teaching, <laughs> is uh, called Foundations of Psychology. Um, I'm currently working on seeing if we could maybe change that name to reflect more about what it goes on in that class. But I've redesigned the class um, because um, there was a previous instructor of the class, but with this one I'm trying to redesign it and hone it in to strengthen the writing and reading skills of those in our field of psychology, like just introduce people to APA format, how to uh, consume literature, read it, and then implement it by having them write their own um, literature review. So what I do in that class is I actually show them like my own kind of research, like mm -hmm. what it looks like when I present at a conference or try to get something published. Like I'll just say like, this is something that you can use um, as like, uh, I guess to, to, so you can see a finished product and I go through all the steps like how we can do this from mind mapping to writing, um, oh my gosh, my mind is just blanking right now, but <laughs> the step-by-step -step through the literature review process. Well, it's it's surprisingly formulaic, uh, yeah. especially in uh, like education, psychology, the, those that field, there's a lot of structure to things that get published. And by the way, knowing that makes it easier to read those articles. Mm -hmm. You can skip some of that stuff and just go right yeah. to the results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've been trying to help the students see like the key things you need to look for. Um, become a better reader. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but this foundations in psychology or whatever you end up calling it, it's um, specifically for people who are interested in majoring in psychology. Right so now, would, yeah. It would be distinct from intro to psychology, which is meant as more of a general education thing. Yes. Okay. So the foundations is more for those who are in the psychology field, social work. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if like nursing students, I don't know if they need to take it, but it's more for those who are thinking of going clinical because if they're thinking of going into clinical work, they need to know how to consume the literature so that they can be a better clinician, somebody who is ethical and also um, effective. So mm -hmm. this is, a, a lot of the students don't, agree with it at the beginning of the semester, like, I don't need to write, like, I want to do this, blah, 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 or I don't need to read, like, what's the point? I'm going to be a clinician. And I tell them, like, trust me, you need these <laughs> skills because you don't, like, if you become a clinician, say, in one year or two years or whatever, the field will change. You need to know how to keep up with it and be an informed consumer of the works. Um, also, who knows, maybe like me, I thought I was going to be a clinician and then I fell in love with research. So just getting that kind of dip in your toes and exposure to it, I think is so vital. Yeah, I agree. And, and it is sometimes hard to say, 
you need to know this because you're going to have to do this, and and yeah. it's different than what you've done before. And I've had students kind of complain, like, this isn't an English class. Why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, guess what? In my There's class, they're probably saying, this isn't a psychology class. Why are we studying grief? Anyway, um, so I warned you about this question. I don't know if you've come up with an answer. Um, what superpowers do you gain from the study of humanities or liberal arts more broadly or specifically English or psychology? So I did think about this, and I think my answer would definitely be empathy mm. because, like, as I mentioned, like, with that humanistic psychology background, empathy is a key to that, but then... Growing up, just, like, with reading, I felt so empathic towards, like, the, these different characters. And I feel like reading really helped develop those empathy skills to try to, to understand different kind of perspectives of different characters and backgrounds. So I feel like I might have, like, maybe a heightened or if I were to be, like, have this as a superpower, I feel like that would definitely be a heightened skill, kind of like... Uh, yeah, I was thinking, I don't know a super or superhero with that skill. I don't know if it's that useful. Honestly. Oh, I think it's critically important. I think yeah. the whole world needs a little more, a little more empathy. Yeah. So I think that's a great answer. Yeah, I was trying to think, like, really, would invincibility or invisibility or something be more awesome? But Oh, those are yeah. so flashy. I know, and so, so common, like, for people to say. But, yeah, I think, I think. Empathy is a good bridge between those two. Yeah, I, that's excellent. I love that. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about the glories of the humanities or the liberal arts? Yeah. Um, so one of my students in the past, I, I won't mention her name because um, I didn't, yeah, I don't, I didn't ask her <laughs> permission, <laughs> first of all. Um, but she's, she's been pretty public recently. Um, I was kind of blown away because she would tell me about like her passion in this one area and she's studying um, psychology and she didn't know like a way how to combine the two and I don't even think she knew she could. So she didn't have the questions to ask me how to do this thing. Um, but, I, but just by listening to her talk and seeing what she's engaged in, I was like, well, did you know that drama therapy is a thing? And it, it kind of goes back to this person-centered expressive arts that I mentioned from Natalie Rogers. It's like there's so many ways. Like if you're a musician, you can combine that passion with psychology. If you are an artist, become an art therapist. If you are into any kind of like humanities, go dance. for it. Yeah, dance. Like there is such a therapeutic value to the humanities in psychology in the healing process that, yeah, I just say kind of go for it. Like there is room for this. Um, we are not just somebody who kind of like sits back on a couch and talk <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Therapy is a pretty active process um, yeah. if you want to become a clinician. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's a self-care technique also, just engaging in dance, art, whatever. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, any any last thoughts? I love the marriage between the humanities 
and psychology. So um, I know some people also put psychology under the humanities umbrella. Um, and, and it's also considered a STEM field. Like, it's this strange in-between thing, too. So, yeah. yeah, like, it's a great thing to study. And if you have any questions, like, I'm sure, like, you can find me. <laughs> like, whether, like, my email is public and all that. So, yeah, I would love to talk to anyone or reach out to them. I don't, I don't mind sharing my, yeah, my background, my things I've learned and stuff and how to help someone get to their goal. And that's all I got. Okay, well, thank you, Charlotte Williams. This has been wonderful. I, I've learned a lot. Um, I hope our listeners have too. Uh, this has been Humanities in Person, brought to you by the Bringing Humanities to Life Project of Bismarck State College. And thank you again.